Welcome to the Charleston Time Machine. I'm Nick Butler, historian at the Charleston County Public Library. And today we're going to travel back in Lowcountry history to explore the topic of hurricanes. Recently, we had a visit from a Category 1 storm named Matthew. Fortunately, Matthew caused more disruption than damage in the Lowcountry. Some folks did sustain significant damage to their property, and a few people lost their lives. But by and large, most of us weathered the storm with few complaints. In the wake of such a storm, we all tend to commiserate and tell ourselves it could have been much worse. Invariably, we share memories of past storms and make comparisons. For example, Matthew's winds were stronger than those of Gaston in 2004, but the evacuation went much smoother this time than with Floyd back in 1999. But can we reach farther back in history to make comparisons with hurricanes from centuries past? The answer isn't easy, but it's definitely worth the effort. So if you're searching for eyewitness accounts of such storms, there are surviving government reports, personal letters, newspaper descriptions, and back in 2006, Walter J. Frazier published a good book on this topic called Low Country Hurricanes. We use the term hurricane to describe large cyclonic or rotating storms that form within the tropical latitudes of the Atlantic Ocean during the warmest months of our solar year. These Western Hemisphere tropical cyclones, as meteorologists call them, usually form off the west coast of Africa near the Cape Verde Islands, and thus are sometimes called Cape Verde storms. In Charleston's past, Writers have used the term hurricane along with similar phrases such as violent storm or ferocious gale. For a brief while, in the Victorian era, Charlestonians seemed to prefer the term cyclone rather than hurricane. But don't be confused. The cyclone of 1885 was most definitely a hurricane when it smashed into the high battery in Charleston. Now, the term hurricane itself is derived from the Spanish word huracán, which in turn is derived from Yurakan, the storm god of the Carib or Taino people, the indigenous population of the Caribbean islands. Since time immemorial, the Taino people have known about the annual season that brings fierce and destructive storms, and they appealed to the storm god Yurakan in an effort to quell his wrath. European mariners first learned about this annual storm season in the 1490s with the earliest transatlantic voyages of Spanish explorers. By the time the colony of Carolina was established in 1670, European mariners were well attuned to the dangers of sailing through the Caribbean islands during the summer and early autumn. They often planned their voyages so as to avoid arriving in or departing from tropical latitudes or in the South Atlantic coastline during the months of August, September, and early October. It was always safer to avoid the hurricane-prone areas, but if that wasn't possible, then riding at anchor in a port like Charleston was considered safer than being on the open ocean when a big storm appeared. In the 346 years since the founding of the Carolina Colony in 1670, this area has experienced more than 30 significant storms. That's an average of about 10 years between memorable storms. It's very difficult to compare the rate of strength of these historical storms because we lack specific data to compare such characteristics as wind speed, storm surge, and barometric pressure. 
Officials in Charleston began reporting such meteorological data in the 1850s, but we really don't have detailed measurements of hurricanes until the early 20th century. The current system of describing the strength of hurricanes, called the Saffir-Simpson Hurricane Wind Scale, was developed in the early 1970s. Thus, the idea of rating the strength of a storm on a scale from 1 to 5 is a relatively new tool, but it's possible to look back at the descriptions of historic storms and make some conclusions about their strength using this modern scale. For example, the hurricane that hit Charleston in mid-September 1752 might have been a strong Category 3 storm, or perhaps even a Category 4, but we simply don't have sufficient data to be more precise. According to our modern National Weather Service, hurricane season officially begins on the first day of June and continues to the last day of November. The midpoint of this season is the 1st of September, and that's the beginning of the most common time for the arrival of the strongest storms. Charleston's most significant storms have historically arrived between the latter half of August and the first half of October. More precisely, the worst storms in Charleston's long history have arrived around the middle of September. At the time I'm recording this, we're at the middle of October, and it looks like we're probably in the clear for the rest of hurricane season. But then there's next year, and the dangerous season starts all over again. But rather than dwelling on the danger of future storms as yet unborn, let's turn our attention backwards to the distant past and take a survey of the most memorable storms in Charleston history. The early European settlers of South Carolina experienced their first significant storm in mid-September 1686. The only information we have about this storm comes from official reports sent home to England, and they contain very few descriptive details. Considering how few people and how few houses there were here, perhaps we shouldn't be surprised at the lack of details. Eyewitnesses reported that a furious storm slammed into Charleston at daybreak on September 5th, but that's actually September 16th on the modern Gregorian calendar. High winds stripped the wooden shingles from houses and toppled trees into the streets. The storm surge, arriving near high tide, overflowed the Cooper River waterfront and flooded the streets, driving many sailing vessels onto high land. In town and in the surrounding countryside, people as well as animals were drowned and injured by flying debris. But we have insufficient data to determine the extent of the casualties. The storm was certainly a cataclysmic event for the nascent colony, but there was also a silver lining to this story. Fortunately for us, the arrival of the hurricane in 1686 coincided with the arrival of a small fleet of Spanish forces from St. Augustine, who sought to attack South Carolina and to drive the English out of the country. After burning and looting on Port Royal Island, Edisto Island, and Wadmala Island, the Spanish fleet was about to set sail for Charleston when the sudden arrival of the powerful storm smashed their ships and foiled their plans. The storm of 1686 may or may not have been one of the most powerful hurricanes to ever hit this coast, but it was very definitely a significant storm in a cultural sense because it contributed directly to the preservation of South Carolina. 
to the early settlers, the miraculous appearance of this hurricane to destroy their enemies provided ample proof that some heavenly power looked kindly on the infant colony. The hurricane of mid-September 1700, sometimes called the Rising Sun Hurricane, is the first storm for which we have several narrative descriptions from eyewitnesses in Charleston. Even without technical data, such as wind speed and storm surge height, these descriptions give us a graphic picture of the extensive damage that occurred here. In a letter to his wife in England, a newly arrived colonist named Edward Hearn described the scene vividly. On Tuesday, September 3rd, that's September 14th on the modern Gregorian calendar, here happened a most terrible storm of wind or hurricane with continual rains, which has done great damage to the country. Thousands of trees have been torn up by the roots, many houses blown down and damnified, much rice, corn, etc. spoiled. But the greatest mischief fell among the shipping, of which about a dozen sail of all sorts were riding at anchor before the town, some of which were driven on shore and broke in all pieces. Some were carried a great way up into the marshes, and one, a brigantine of about 80 tons, was driven clear over the point of land which parts the two rivers into Ashley and Cooper Rivers, that is, what we now call White Point Garden. And in her way, breaking down a pair of gallows on which eight pirates at once were hanged since my coming here. Some vessels were turned bottom upwards and lost. Captain Bell lost all his masts and was turned bottom upwards. But they have got her to rights again, and I believe she will be the next ship for England. Being spring tides, the water was very high and raging, so to so that if the wind had not shifted as it did about two hours before high water, it is thought the best and greatest part of the town would have been washed down into the river, as one or two houses were, and others were very near. At the same time that Henry Hearn was writing to his wife, the Legislative Council of South Carolina was writing a letter to the Lord's Proprietors of Carolina in London. In their letter, they described the fate of a Scottish ship carrying refugees from the failed Scots settlement of Caledonia, or Darien, in what is today called Panama. On Tuesday, the 3rd of September, we had a great storm of wind and rain, which hath done a great deal of damage to all the planters as well as traders. Most of the vessels in the harbor were driven ashore and sunk, and five wrecked. A Scotch frigate called the Rising Sun, mounted with 60 guns, about 220 men belonging to her, which came from Caledonia, lost all her masts, and came to lay before our bar of Ashley River, designing to lighten so as that she might come into our harbor to refit. And she was in the same storm at anchor, broke all to pieces, and 97 men with the commander, Captain James Gibson, then on board, all lost." The next big storm to hit Charleston landed in 1713, again in mid-September. Eyewitness Thomas Lamble described the event in a manuscript journal, which was later transcribed and published by historian David Ramsey. Lamble recorded that on 5 September came a great hurricane, which was attended with such an inundation from the sea, and to such an unknown height that a great many lives were lost. 
All the vessels in Charleston Harbor, except one, were drove ashore. The new lookout tower on Sullivan's Island, built of wood, eight square and 80 feet high, was blown down. All the front fortification wall and mud parapet before Charlestown undermined and washed away, with the platform and gun carriages and other desolations sustained as never before happened to this town. The Reverend Gideon Johnston, minister of St. Philip's Church, estimated the value of the damage caused by this 1713 storm at approximately 100,000 pounds in South Carolina money, which was a vast sum for that time. At that moment, a new brick church for the parish of St. Philip's was just under construction, and the storm caused significant damage to the unfinished structure. Unfortunately, Charleston was visited by another powerful hurricane just one year later, in mid-September 1714, and the completed brick walls of the new St. Philip's Church were toppled to the ground. In the autumn of 1714, Colonel William Rhett in Charlestown wrote to his friends in London with the sad news. We had a violent hurricane on Friday the 10th, which has done much the same damage to the whole country as that last year. But the greatest misfortune is our new brick church, which, as I wrote in the foregoing, was ready for the roof, is now considerably damaged by this storm, the north and south sides being quite blown down to the water table, the windows broken and shattered all to pieces. In the autumn of 1714, the Reverend Gideon Johnston was in London, where he interviewed a few survivors of the storm who had just arrived in England. In a postscript, he noted, I was informed last Tuesday at the Carolina Coffee House in London that had not the wind chopped about suddenly and at the nick of time, Charlestown, with all of its inhabitants, would have been laid under water. In the 1720s, hurricanes hit the South Carolina coastline at least three times, but we have very limited information about some of these storms. During that decade, South Carolina was in the process of making a very slow and rather painful political transition from being a proprietary colony owned by a small group of lords proprietors to a royal colony owned directly by the British monarchy. Here in Charleston, the capital of our colony, our governor and legislature didn't get along very well, and there was a great deal of petty squabbling going on among the elected assembly. As a result, our government was rather ineffective and didn't keep very good records. Nevertheless, the surviving documents mention the arrival of a destructive storm in the autumn of 1722 that did some damage to St. Philip's Church, which was still unfinished, and to the waterfront fortifications in Charleston. Another strong storm in late August 1724 caused widespread damage to crops and ruined several of the wooden wharves in the port of Charleston. A bit more information survives about the hurricane of 1728, which struck Charleston in late August or early September, depending on which sources you read. In his 1809 History of South Carolina, David Ramsey provided us with a good description of the 1728 storms, probably based on his interview with eyewitnesses. Ramsey says, During the summer of 1728, the weather was observed by the inhabitants of Charlestown to be uncommonly hot. A dreadful hurricane followed, occasioning an inundation which overflowed the town and the low lands, and did incredible damage to the fortifications, houses, 
wharves, shipping, and cornfields. The streets of Charleston were covered with boats, boards, barrel staves, and the inhabitants were obliged to take refuge in the higher stories of their dwelling houses. Twenty-three ships were driven ashore, most of which were either greatly damaged or dashed to pieces. The Fox and the Garland, two warships of the British Navy, stationed here for the protection of our trade, were the only ships that rode out the storm. The three hurricanes that hit the coast of South Carolina in the 1720s were followed by another powerful storm in early September 1730. At that time, there wasn't yet a newspaper in Charleston. We had to wait until early January 1732 for that innovation. But there were newspapers in the northern colonies, with whom we had regular communication. The Boston Newsletter, for example, the edition of 22 October 1730, contains a brief description of the recent South Carolina hurricane. Dozens of ships were damaged in the Charleston Harbor, including three warships of the British Navy, and many were driven ashore into the streets of the town. The damage could have been worse, but the worst of the storm seemed to arrive at low tide. Nevertheless, the Carolina planters worried about their valuable rice crop, which appeared to have been decimated by the storm. In the wake of this storm, the leaders of the Baptist congregation in urban Charleston appealed to the legislature, asking for funds to rebuild their wooden meeting house, which the hurricane of 1730 had flattened. The most significant hurricane of the 18th century was most definitely the storm of 1752. Or rather, I should say, the storms of 1752, because Charleston was hit by two major hurricanes spaced just two weeks apart. The first of these storms arrived here on Friday the 15th of September and caused a massive amount of destruction. Fortunately, several excellent descriptions of this hurricane have survived. For example, let me read you a few excerpts from the South Carolina Gazette of 19 September 1752. The most violent and terrible hurricane that was ever felt in this province happened on Friday the 15th instant, in the morning, and has reduced this town to a very melancholy situation. On the 14th, in the evening, it began to blow very hard, the wind being at the northeast, and the sky looked wild and threatening. It continued blowing from the same point, with little variation, till about 4 o'clock in the morning of the 15th and at which time it became a little more violent and rained, increasing very fast till about 9 a.m., when the flood came in like a bore, filling the harbor in a few minutes. Before 11 o'clock, all the vessels in the harbor were on shore, except the Hornet, a man of war, which rode it out by cutting away her mainmast. All the wharves and bridges were ruined, and every house, store, and upon them, beat down and carried away, with all the goods, etc., therein, as were also many houses in the town, an abundance of roofs, chimneys, etc. Almost all the tile or slated houses were uncovered, and great quantities of merchandise, etc., in the stores on the Bay Street, damaged by their doors being burst open. The town was likewise overflowed, the tide or sea having rose upwards of ten foot above the high water mark at spring tides, 
and nothing was to be seen but the ruins of houses, canoes, wrecks of pediagas, and boats, masts, yards, incredible quantities of all sorts of timber, barrel staves, shingles, household and other goods, floating and driving with great violence through the streets and around the town. The inhabitants, finding themselves in the midst of a tempestuous sea and the wind still continuing, the tide, according to its common course, being expected to flow till after one o'clock, and many of the people being already up to their necks in water in their houses, began now to think of nothing but certain death. But here we must record as signal an instance of the most immediate interposition of the divine providence that ever appeared, and they were soon delivered from their apprehensions. For, about ten minutes after eleven o'clock, the wind veered to the east-southeast, then south and southwest, very quickly, and then, though it continued its violence, and the sea beat and dashed everywhere with amazing impetuosity, the waters fell above five feet in the space of ten minutes, without which unexpected and sudden fall every house and inhabitant in the town must, in all probability, have perished. And before three o'clock, the hurricane was entirely over. Many people were drowned, and others much hurt by the fall of houses. At Sullivan's Island, the pest house was carried away, and of fifteen people that were there, nine are lost. The rest saved themselves by adhering strongly to some of the rafters of the house when it fell, upon which they were driven some miles beyond the island to Hobcaw. That's the western edge of Mount Pleasant today. And at Fort Johnson on James Island, the barracks were beat down, most of the guns dismounted, and their carriages carried away. At Cravens and Granville Bastions in Charlestown, and all the batteries around this town, the cannon were likewise dismounted. The mermaid, man of war, which had just gone up to Hobcaw to heave down, was drove ashore not far from the careening place. The ship Lucy of and for London, John Bullman Master, which lay windbound in Rebellion Road, dragged her anchors, drove by the fort and by this town, and ran ashore upon a marsh about seven miles up the Cooper River. Captain Walker's pilot boat was driven against the governor's house, that's the Pinckney Mansion on East Bay Street, and his sloop, the Endeavor, bound for Jamaica, after beating down His Excellency's coach house, stables, etc., was dashed to pieces against Mr. Raper's house, that's near Market Street. For about 30 miles round Charlestown, there is hardly a plantation that has not lost every outhouse upon it. All our roads are so filled with trees, blown down and broke down, that traveling is rendered extremely difficult, and hardly a fence was left standing in town or country. Our loss in fine timber trees is almost incredible, and we have suffered greatly also in the loss of cattle, sheep, hogs, and all kinds of provisions. Two weeks after this massive storm, another hurricane plowed into the low country on Saturday the 30th of September. On 3 October 1752, the South Carolina Gazette provided a brief description of the event. For two or three days before the worst of the storm, the violence of the wind and the great quantity of rain that had fallen kept the tides from ebbing their due course and time, 
so that when this hurricane began to abate, though the water should have been low, it was higher than at common spring tides. And had the wind rose, as was expected, when the flood should have come in, our situation would have been the most deplorable indeed. But the same providence that interposed before was again viable here. In this town, it did little other damage than to the goods of those people who had removed from the most exposed places, and to the tops of some houses. But at Winyaw, that is, in the area of Georgetown, we are informed that it was more severely felt there than the former hurricane. About midnight, the wind veered round to the northwest when another violent storm broke up the bad weather. We have daily such a number of melancholy accounts from all parts of the country of the damage sustained on the 15th and on the 30th that they would afford endless matter for this newspaper were we to publish them. The widespread destruction caused by the storms of 1752 took many years to repair. Fortunately for the inhabitants of South Carolina, however, the second half of the 18th century proved to be a long period of relative calm. A notable storm in early June 1770 caused some damage to Charleston's waterfront fortifications, but otherwise it was soon forgotten. Another storm in August 1778 damaged a few ships and toppled trees and fences around Charleston, but it too was soon put out of mind. Hurricane force winds smashed wharves and ships in early October 1783, but a sudden change in the wind at the height of the storm saved the city from major damage. The most significant event during the 1783 hurricane was the destruction of the first Fort Moultrie, that palmetto log fort built on Sullivan's Island in great haste in 1776. Although a more modern federal fortification sits on that same spot today, the venerable fort that repulsed the British Navy in June 1776 was entirely washed away in the hurricane of 1783. Another severe gale struck Charleston in late October 1792. That's probably the latest arriving storm in our history but its impact was relatively small. During the autumn of 1797, a series of hurricanes brushed the Carolina coastline and claimed many lives, but most of the losses were at sea rather than on land. In urban Charleston, the most important loss of the 1797 hurricane season was the destruction of the newly built city project called East Bay Street Continued. Today, we call that East Battery, or the street directly behind the high battery seawall. Construction of this earthen road commenced in 1785 by filling in what was essentially a beach protected by a newly built palmetto log wharf. Every bit of this expensive city project was undermined and washed away in the autumn of 1797. The project to extend East Bay Street to White Point was restarted in 1798 at great expense, but then, on the 4th of October, 1800, another powerful hurricane brought in a storm surge that nearly demolished the new work. After extensive repairs were made and the work continued, Charleston was set to have a beautiful promenade overlooking the harbor. But Charleston was also long overdue for a powerful hurricane. On the 7th of September, 1804, 
Mother Nature called again with the strongest storm to hit Charleston since the massive storm of 1752, and the destruction was epic. Unfortunately, I'm out of time for this week, but I hope you'll join me next week for the conclusion of our tour of hurricane history when the Charleston time machine returns to the airwaves. This program was produced by Kevin Crothers for WYLA at the Charleston County Public Library. I'll be back on the air next week with more adventures in Lowcountry hurricane history. But if you'd like to join me in person for a live presentation at the Charleston County Public Library, check out the library's calendar of events at ccpl.org or visit my blog, charlestontimemachine.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Nick Butler, and I'll see you in the future.